Okay, uh, what we're doing this semester is we're going through the book of Revelation, and we're trying to see how the book of Revelation, far from being a, a book of confusion that's supposed to ramp up your anxiety, in the beginning he says, blessed are those who hear this, that it's actually a book that's here for clarity and to bless you. And it does that by saying things are not as they seem. That what Revelation keeps doing is saying there's more going on than you can perceive with your unaided senses. And it pulls back the curtain and it shows you reality. It shows you the spiritual world in the present, the realm behind this realm. And tonight what's going to happen is this is kind of a unique part of Revelation because Jesus through John writes these seven letters to, the church, to these local churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And in each church he commends certain things and he rebukes certain things and he encourages things. But there's a reason that it's seven churches. Numbers are a big deal in Revelation. There's a reason it's not eight. There's a reason it's not five. Because seven is the number of completeness. And so when, when Jesus writes to seven churches, he's saying, I'm writing this for the complete people of God, for everybody. But here's the whole, things are not as they seem in the, in the, uh, in the one that we're going to read. There's only one church that Jesus writes to that things are going well. They don't seem to be being persecuted. They're not being thrown in jail. Their lives are very comfortable and they're thriving. So if you were to look at that church, you would say, that's the healthy church. Every other church is, is being persecuted and, uh, and it seems to be falling apart. But Jesus is going to pull back the curtain and say, things are not as they seem. This is actually the unhealthy church. And so as you listen, I know we're constantly saying this needs to be a safe place for your questions. And if you're trying to figure out Christianity... I'm going to admit to you tonight, if you're, if you're trying to figure out Christianity tonight, like this is geared towards Christians. But listen, this will show you the thing that repulses Jesus with Christians. And I bet it's the thing that repulses you. And see if that doesn't draw you in. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, this is, your, uh, this is your word. It is living and it is active. And though I, I think a lot of us um, kind of don't know what to do with the last book of the Bible, so we just read the other 65 uh, Lord, would you meet us in what many of us consider a foreign and strange book, and would you bless us uh, by showing us the great and gracious love of Jesus Christ. We ask this in your son's name, I pray. Amen. All right, here's Revelation 3, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I'll grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God it stands forever. Okay, I want you to just see three things. The problem of being lukewarm the reason for being lukewarm and the remedy for being lukewarm. First, the problem. Right, verse 15 and 16. I'm going to readily admit 
I might have made up a word that I'm going to use a lot tonight, lukewarmness. I don't know if that's a real word. Every time I typed it, there's that like red squiggly line under there that said it wasn't. I'm going to say lukewarmness a lot. It's the only way I know how to get this across. But of all the churches okay, that Jesus writes to, Laodicea is the most severe. It's the only one that doesn't have any commendations from Jesus about things that they're doing right or people within their congregation that are doing well. Instead, he just goes straight to the problem. It's as if he can't find anything commendable. And so the question that we got to ask is this. What's the big deal? Like, what's the big deal with this church of Laodicea that Jesus just cuts to the chase and comes with this, with this jolting rebuke? Right? I mean, I don't know what, what you think it would be, but I, I mean, I think we think, well, maybe it's like rampant sexual immorality. I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's drunkenness. Maybe it's violence. But here's what Jesus says it is. It's because you're lukewarm. It's because you're neither hot nor cold. I will spit, and it's actually more jolting language. He said, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. So there's something about this lukewarmness that is repulsive to Jesus. So what does it mean to be lukewarm? That's the question, right? And probably I think the first thing I have to do is get you to not read our assumptions into the text. Right? I, don't, I don't always assume that you're like me, but I grew up in the South, and I heard this passage many times at evangelistic meetings, and this is how it was kind of said. Look, where are you tonight? How do you feel about Jesus? Because what Jesus can't stand more than anything is for you to be in the middle. And something like this will be said. Either make a choice, either love him with passion or hate him and reject him with this icy, cold hatred. Jesus would rather you do that than to kind of sit in the middle and just kind of mildly like and tolerate Jesus. And it kind of worked. Like, it kind of scared me, right? It was pretty jolting. But is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think he is for two reasons. First of all, like, does that sound like Jesus anywhere else? That he says, hey, I'd rather you hate me than kind of like me. I can't find anywhere else where he says that. But more importantly, he is speaking to a church in Laodicea. So how would the people of Laodicea heard this reference? That's what we got to figure out. Because how they would have heard it is how we need to interpret it. And here, here's what historians point out, about, uh, point out about Laodicea. Laodicea, it was a trade town, and it was right in the middle of a, of a town about six miles north called Heropolis and ten miles to the east called Colossia. And here's what those two towns were known for. North, you could go six, six miles, and Heropolis had these amazing hot springs. Right? Remember, this is a time that there is no hot water heaters. So when you would go into that, to, that, to those springs, it was comforting. It was refreshing. It was healing. Okay? And then about ten miles to the, to the west was the city of Colossia, which was positioned in such a way that it had these cold springs of water that would come down the mountain and would refresh you as you drank it. But Laodicea, it was just this trade town that had to be fed by aqueducts because the, the water source in their area was so muddy and actually had this powder that we'll kind of talk about that it would actually make you sick when you drank it. It would make you want to spit it out. It's so tepid. So how, here's the question, would the people of Laodicea have heard this rebuke? They would not have heard cold as negative, but hot as positive. They would have known both cold water and hot water serves its purpose. 
that it refreshes you, that it comforts you. They would have equated the lukewarm reference, here you go, with their own water source, which was useless, which did not achieve a purpose that it was supposed to because it didn't bring refreshment and it didn't bring healing and it didn't bring restoration. It was just kind of there. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're my people. You're my church. And yet, people who interact with you They're not refreshed. They're not restored. They're not healed. They're not comforted. They're just kind of, they're just kind of put off. You're just kind of there. He's kind of saying this. The church could be removed from Laodicea, and nobody would kind of care. Because they weren't really that refreshing or comforting or loving of a place anyway. So the church, this is to use kind of Ricky Jones' term, who I'm borrowing a lot from here, they were just smug. Like, that's who they were. And it's that characteristic that Jesus says, I will spit you out. There's an addiction recovery ministry in Memphis uh, called Love and Action. And there's a pastor I know who tells about one time he finally got got invited down to this this ministry. And so he was just observing it and, and... and this particular morning, this man kind of gets up and he starts sharing some of the struggles. And he starts talking about his addictions and how he's still struggling. And it wasn't long before as he was talking, these hands in the, in the crowd would go up. And then he started going deeper into his problems, to the point that uh, my friend was like, man, I can't believe he's talking about this. And these, these hands kept shooting up. And so my, my, the pastor that I know was kind of getting frustrated because he felt like this guy wasn't addressing any of their questions. And so finally he went up to kind of the director of the ministry and he said, I, I don't really understand what's going on. He said, why, why won't he answer their questions? And he said, oh, you don't, you don't get it, do you? He said, at this ministry, we have a rule that whenever you confess the sins that you struggle with, that if you're in the crowd and you've ever done it or you've thought of it, you just raise your hand and you stand with him. Nobody here ever struggles alone. That's it, right? I mean, honestly, if you're struggling with addiction, like, wouldn't when you, don't you want to be there? Because that would be a place of refreshment and honesty and encouragement. Wouldn't that be rest for your weary soul? That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm the God who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. That's who I am. I will give you rest and grace. But if you are my people and you wear people out, and you pile on burdens, and you shame people, then I want to spit you out. Because that's not what I'm about. You're not achieving your purpose. And so the first thing I I think that this letter is asking us to do is if you claim to be a Christian, examine yourself. Like, do people feel refreshed when they're around you and your group of friends? Do do people feel like they can, that it's okay to not be okay around you? Or do they get beat up? I do. I find this interesting, right? It, it makes sense to me in some ways. Why? I mean, there's people that I know, right, who let's say they struggle with, uh, with same-sex attraction. And there's been something very refreshing when they have finally entered a homosexual community and admitted what they're terrified about themselves, 
and they found themselves loved. Now, I realize you probably got a lot of questions to that, but my question is this. Why can't the church be the place where you finally start admitting your deepest fears, what's going on, and you actually realize it's okay to not be okay? You find refreshment there and healing there. So the first thing is this. Lukewarm means that you're... That you're not, you claim Jesus' name, but you're not providing refreshment spiritually, nor healing spiritually. So, okay, what causes then us to be lukewarm? Verse 17, he says, he says, here's the reason. You're lukewarm. Because people don't find you refreshing because you say this. I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you're a wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now again... I think this is where knowing a little bit of what Laodicea was like will help. Because Laodicea, if you read kind of any historian, they were known for three things. They were known for their wealth. They were this massive trade city. So wealthy was Laodicea that when this earthquake came through the region in, in, uh, in 60 AD that leveled multiple cities, Laodicea was so wealthy that they refused Roman government uh, assistance, right? Libertarians, yeah. And they just did it themselves. They said, we don't need your help. And they like prided themselves in that. Second of all, they were known for how incredibly clothed they were. There was this textile industry in Laodicea that was built on the, the kind of shiny wool that came from that place. To the point their clothes would be exported all over the ancient kind of first century world. So they were wealthy. They had incredibly beautiful clothes. And third... They were known for their medical school. There was this man who, who had founded this medical school, and he had specifically researched the area uh, of uh, kind of problems with the eye. And there was this powder, and this is what we get in the river. There's this powder that as he researched, that the rumor was it, it could become this salve, this ointment, that when you put it on people's eyes, it would really help eyesight. It really helped disease. That's what they were known for. Wealth. Good clothes and a medical research that would, that, would, that would heal eyes. Now do you see how personal Jesus is being? He looks at people who are proud of their clothing, proud of their wealth, proud of their medical center, and says, you're poor, you're naked, and you're blind. In other words, the problem with the church in Laodicea was this. They thought they had no problems. That was their problem. The things that they were so proud of were the very things that were masking the big problems that they had. The things they were proud of masked just how broken and messed up and sinful they really were. They had so much going for them that they were self-sufficient and they didn't feel like they needed anything, right? They boasted that. We need nothing. And Jesus says that's exactly the problem. To quote John Stott, to be lukewarm is to be blind of your own condition. Look, I, you know, some of you know me better than others. Um, and believe it or not, uh, those who know you know me well, believe it or not, I am a little less sarcastic at age 33 than I was like in college. I really am. I've gotten better. Some of you might not believe that. Um, but here was kind of me and my group of friends, right? And you you got to kind of find a way to fit in when you're... Um, we're kind of skinny and puny and not the smartest, you know. Like what you start doing is developing ways to get people to like you, right? Not, man, I was just funny. 
I, at least I thought I was. And, and I could be so cutting with my sarcasm. It was just hilarious, right? I mean, I can remember, I've told this before, like me and my group of friends, like when, when somebody would leave our house and the door would shut and there'd be other people there, it'd be like, man, I thought they would never leave. Right? And it was so funny, right? I mean, we would laugh. And so I was convinced that my sarcasm, it was probably like the most attractive thing about me, okay? And then this wonderful woman, Eliza Thompson, marries me, okay? And she's amazing. And about six or seven months into marriage, I'm actually, I think I was teaching Sunday school, I think. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I'm insecure because I don't know these people. So I, so I just, right, I'm just sarcastic, right? I think, you know, I say something belittling about the people there. And it's hilarious. Except nobody's laughing. And I get home and my wife loves me enough to say, like, your, like, your sarcasm just isn't funny. Like, it actually hurts people. And here's what was so interesting at that moment. What I thought was awesome about me was actually one of the biggest hurdles that Liza had to get over. What I thought was so attractive about me was actually repulsive. That's what Jesus is saying. That your biggest problems are the ones that you're not aware of. Because they seem great. The biggest problem is that we think there's no problem at all. It's the good stuff about you. That's going to mask how broken and needy and sinful you really are. And it's the good stuff about you that will keep you from the refreshing and healing work of Jesus. That's what he's saying. Why? Because the good stuff is what tempts us to think that we don't need anything. That Jesus, yeah, maybe he's nice. He kind of, he kind of gives me some things and he shapes up some of the rough edges of my life. But I don't really need him that much. And it's the good stuff that masks the fact that what we need is undeserved grace. And so ask yourself, like, what's the stuff that you're smug about? What's the stuff that you're proud of? That's probably hiding. That's the mask that's keeping you from running to Jesus. Right? So if Jesus were to write you a letter to confront you, what would he say? It's going to be the stuff that you're proud of, right? He'd say stuff like, you think you're fine. Because you're so good at working different crowds and making everybody like you. You think you're fine because you're wealthy and comfortable. You think you're fine because, because you're in that fraternity. You're in that sorority and you didn't have to go to the second tier one. Or you think you're fine because you saw how shallow fraternities were and you didn't join it and you didn't need it. Right? We're all finding these things that we're proud of and saying, this is what makes me okay. And Jesus is saying, whatever you smugly look down on others for... That's your blind spot. That's the thing you're holding on to. That's kind of your own righteousness that makes you good enough, that keeps you from being broken and needy before Jesus. And listen, what Jesus says is this. I did not come for the righteous. I came for sinners. Which means that the one thing that blocks Jesus, hear me, it's not your sin. It's your pride. That's what keeps Jesus at arm's length. It's your lack of need. Jesus comes to restore the broken. But if you don't see you're broken, you don't get restored. Jesus comes to cover shame. But if I minimize my shame, Jesus doesn't cover me. The one thing Jesus requires of you to be in relationship with him is need. 
And that's the, that's the one thing the, the people of Laodicea were lacking, was need, because they had everything. And Jesus says, what I require of you is to need my life and my bloody death on the cross in your place. Jesus comes and only comes to beggars who are needy. And here's why being blind to your own condition will finally make you lukewarm. Sinclair Ferguson says this, and this is, I kind of hate this quote, but it's a good quote. He says, you are always to others exactly as you believe Jesus has been to you. You are always to others exactly as Jesus has been to you, as you think Jesus has been to you. And Jesus tells a parable about that, actually. So here's what this is saying, Right? If you aren't refreshing to others, what it means is it's just been a while since you've been refreshed by Jesus' grace. That's the only explanation. And it's probably because you're blind. Right? If people constantly feel judged and condescended to by you, what it means is in your heart you think Jesus is really disappointed in you. You think if Jesus saw the real you... He'd be so disappointed so you choose to remain blind to how naked and broken you are and just smugly look at the good stuff. If the only time people enjoy hanging out with you is when they don't mess up, I'm telling you, it means you are convinced that Jesus only enjoys you when you have it all together. And you've missed it. Don't make the common mistake, and we'll quote Les Newsom here, that interprets lukewarmness as saying you're not, as saying you're sinning. It's not what Jesus is saying. Rather, lukewarm is when you think you're not sinning. And you don't, that's what he's after. He isn't going after their disobedience, he's going after their self-righteousness. That's what he's after. And so we see the problem of being lukewarm, we see the reason is being blinded by our true condition, by all of our perceived good stuff. So what's the remedy? And I'll go through these things quickly. There, there's three things he says. First, did you see how Jesus introduces himself to this blind church? He says, I'm the words of the amen. I'm the faithful and true witness. There's a reason that Jesus leads with that title. Because he's, going, he's trying to break the self-deception of the Laodiceans. Jesus is going to be a faithful and true witness and show them who they really are. Their only hope is if someone kindly comes to them and shares the loving truth. And here should be the encouragement to you tonight. If you're sitting here tonight saying, yikes, I think I'm lukewarm. I think I'm more messed up than I thought. Far from that being proof that Jesus has abandoned you, it's proof he loves you. It's proof he's coming after you. He says he disciplines and reproves those whom he loves. He's a faithful and true witness calling attention tonight to things you otherwise would never see. That's not bad news. That's good news. Look, there are, I, there are really only three children I love in this whole world. I know that sounds terrible, but there are. Like even my nephew, even these other kids that, that, that I'm around, my, my, the friends of my kids, I don't really love them. I just want them to like me, and so I don't discipline them. I just don't. I never spanked a kid that's not mine. I don't think I've ever put a kid in time out. I just, like, when they're bad, I just hand them back. <laughs> because I don't love, like, I really don't love them. I, I just want them to like me. 
But my kids, man, I love them. I love them, so I discipline them. And Revelation is coming and it's saying, I know, I know as you think that you're seeing that you're more messed up than you thought. That seems like bad news, and Revelation says things are not as they seem. It's good news. It's good news. Because Jesus is pressing in. He's being loving and truthful to you. And here's the thing. As you realize how loving and truthful is to Jesus, remember, you'll always be to others as you think Jesus has been to you. It'll make you very healing and refreshing. You'll finally start loving people enough to share the truth with them. You will. You'll finally start being honest with friends. You'll finally learn to speak words of encouragement instead of words of sarcasm. Somebody once said a friend is somebody who who stabs you in the front instead of stabbing you in the back. And that's right. My best friends have both encouraged me to my face and told me hard things to my face. Because that's who Jesus is. Second of all, right, there's this purchase. In verse 18, Jesus comes and he says, Come to me and buy. Buy this gold that's been refined by fire so that you may be rich. Buy these garments to clothe the shame of your nakedness. Buy the salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see. Here's the question, right? Jesus just said, you are bankrupt, you're poor. And then he says, come and buy. How is that possible? How can you buy if you have no money? Well, Rachel read it for us. Isaiah 55 says, he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Here's the wonder of Jesus. What's required of you to get his righteousness, to get his covering, to be immersed in his love, is you finally quit offering him stuff. You finally quit trying to leverage him with all your good stuff and saying, ah, this is the reason you should like me. And what's required is to realize that everything that I need will just come from Jesus by free grace. It's free because it cost him everything. And so it costs me nothing. Jesus only deals in the currency of grace. No other, no other currency. Jesus is coming and saying, buy. And it's going to come from me. The riches come from me. The clothing comes from me. The eyesight comes from me. Not from you. It's free because it costs Jesus everything. And when you come and you come and you, you say, all I've got is my shame. All I've got is the fact that I don't see rightly. Jesus says, here's my righteousness. Pure and whole. It will cover your shame. Not, you, I will never see it again. You'll start seeing rightly again. You'll see people as I see them. You'll see yourself as I see you. Jesus is always better than you think. He's always better than you think. And that's what repentance looks like. As I begin to turn not just from the bad stuff, but also the good stuff about me. And I turn to Jesus and I receive from him his free grace and his righteousness and his forgiveness. Then out of that joy, out of that delight, I follow him in obedience. That's repentance. And the last thing is this knock. Right? I wish we could spend more time, but it's amazing. This is so upside down. It would seem, right, in a letter that is most severe of all letters, it would seem that he would not have such a gracious response. But things are not as they seem. On the other side of Jesus' stinging rebuke is the most compassionate most gracious and gentle invitation. 
Right? Again, I grew up hearing this verse used in such a way that it was this kind of last chance invitation to non-Christians. Are you on the fence tonight? Are your passions waning for Jesus? It's time to decide. Let's go. And I'm not saying it can't do that, okay? That's fine. But it really, like, it was, a lot of it was just fear and manipulation. And that's not what this is doing. This verse, this picture of Jesus standing at the door, you know where it comes from? It comes from Song of Solomon 5.2, where you have this husband deeply in love with his bride and is standing at the door knocking that awaits her and the groom is saying, open, open to me, my beloved. This is written to Christians. What a picture. It's not primarily an evangelistic tool. They will, they will do that. It's written to churches. It's written to people like you and me who have very simply, we've just waned in our love of Jesus. We just don't care for him like we should. And look at Jesus. He's not looking at our lukewarmness. He's not looking at our lack of love towards him and our lack of refreshment towards others. He's not looking at that with his arms crossed, tolerating us, saying, tis, 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 disappointed. What you see is this amazing picture. That in the midst of our lukewarmness towards him, the Lord Jesus is decidedly not lukewarm towards us. He's just not. He is this lover at the door who wants to fill you with passion. A lover who's saying, let me refresh you. Let me cover you. There's a, I'll end with this. There's a guy named uh, David Ireland who, um, I've told a story from him before, not this one. He wrote this book called Letters to an Unborn Child. And the reason he did is he found out um, that he was diagnosed with a disease, kind of like Lou Gehrig's disease, though I don't, or ALS, right? It's kind of made it around um, lately, which eventually just paralyzes you because your, your muscles just atrophy. And his wife was actually pregnant, and he realized that he would probably die before his child ever really knew him. So he just started kind of writing this book to his unborn child. And it, man, it's, it's like amazing. But one, like a few of the chapters, what he does is he starts telling his unborn child about his mom, about the child's mom, his wife. He says, I just want you to know what she's like. He says, and he says, here's what happens frequently. He says, I hate taking a shower, but I have to do it about twice a week. And I can't really do it myself, so your mom washes my hair, gets me clean. And after the shower, what ends up happening is what I hate. I end up in front of the mirror, shirtless. And it's that moment that I see myself. And I see my concave chest. And I see my muscles atrophy. And I see how my, hang kinda, my head hangs to the right because I can't really keep it up. And I just see how ugly I am. He said, every time your mom, my wife, comes and looks at me and says, would you quit admiring yourself in the mirror? I'm going to take that away. And then he said about, he said about two hours later, she'll always do this. She'll, she'll wheel me to the dinner table, and she'll sit down, and she'll put my hand in her lap, and she'll look at me and say, you know you're handsome, right? I think you're the most handsome person in all the world. You believe that, right? And I love you. And he says somehow, somehow, because of our shared experience and because of all she's been through with me, I know she really means it. That's what Revelation 3 is doing. It's saying, Jesus is knocking at the door. And as you look at yourself in the mirror, and as you feel exposed, and you see, and you're like, I'm a lot uglier than I think. 
when we see all of our deformities and all our shame, you'll hear Jesus say, you know I think you're great. You know I've covered your shame. You know I'm never leaving you. And you'll actually start believing it. And it'll heal you. And you'll become refreshing to other people. Wouldn't that be worth finding? That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, um, this is uh, incredibly good news. I, I, don't, I don't know everybody in this uh, auditorium. Uh, I know myself decently well. You know me a lot better uh, than I know even myself. I think we all go through stages of very uh, of lukewarmness where uh, we're just disappointed with people. We're actually ashamed of ourselves, and we're convinced you're ashamed of us. Lord, would you open the fountain tonight and enable us to buy without money and be covered by your righteousness and be immersed in your love so it will change us, so it will change us into people who are a refreshment to others and rest for, for weary, struggling people. We ask this in Jesus' name.